Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. When one thinks about organized crime, they usually turn to big cities like Kansas City, Chicago, or New York. But in the mid-1900s, organized crime was right here in our own backyard, thanks to a man by the name of Leo Moncton. Find out more about the criminal mastermind coming up next. Now, here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Travis, we go from the underground caves to the criminal underground. Yeah, we're going to cover every meaning of the word, I think. In, uh, that, this will about <laughs> in do this it, season. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to hit every type of underground possible. We'll That's give you right. details coming up here in a few minutes on that. But, uh, Travis, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. A lot of lot of research coming up on this one. A lot of stuff. Yeah. How about yourself? How's the, how's the day find you? I, I'm, I'm finding that the uh, pumpkin spice is becoming more and more prevalent as we get into the fall. It's creeping. Those leaves are changing colors. The fall is here. Yeah. Unless fall you're listening to this like in you know summer of 2023, and then, hey, it's hot outside. But whatever. You know what? Pumpkin spice, I'll eat a pumpkin pie any damn day of the oh, year. Oh, yeah. Totally. Delicious. Totally. You throw a little whipped cream on there. Yeah. Oh, speaking of some whipped cream and all sorts of deliciousness, Travis, we have some new Patreon members. And I, before you tell us who the new Patreon members are, I've been saying this for a while, and I'm finally glad to get to say this. Is I always say none of my friends must listen because because I never would never get any love. I I feel like I'm going to take this one. Oh, I'm going to take this one. You know as, what? As a you've, love. you've earned it, Chris. <laughs> you've earned it. You, you must be speaking of the local uh, meteorological legend. Brian Inman, at the, who joined us at the $5 uh, Jeff special level. Thank you very much, Brian. Yeah. Uh, also want to thank Jill Holton, who also joined us at the $5. The Jeff special level is a very hot ticket item over the last two weeks, Chris. And not to mention our most recent, Gage Hagen, who also joined us at the $5 Jeff special level. We appreciate all those patrons of Wild Things who have unlocked countless hours well, you could count them but who's got the time of bonus episodes we do every other week that we don't have a live episode so quite a backlog has formed also have access to lots of fun things and hopefully soon if we can get some details nailed down we'll have another patreon outing to get all the details on a fun live event like that you want to jump over and uh draw us a few bucks a month and make that happen Travis, I, I actually lied. I, I now have thousands of friends from everybody listening to our podcast. So how about that? That's right. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> there ain't a friendship bracelet big enough, Chris. To, <laughs> to, uh, I think we might have had a friendship necklace back in the day. Do you remember Are you that? kidding? Let's, that's, no, let's not talk about it. Let's oh, it. Yeah, it's getting weird. <laughs> it's, it's getting, getting weird. weird. We were young enough, so it wasn't too weird. But, I yeah. did think we got it. We got a plan too. We're getting up there in our numbers, and we yeah. talked about it at the very beginning, and we've never put it out there. But we do have the notorious kid radio station. Uh, oh, yeah. K, what was it? K Rock. Oh, something like you like don't that. know it. Yeah. K R O K ninety one point one. Chris. So we, our, we our imaginary to, radio station. We we, we have to get it. our figure out when we're going to uh, release those. What's going to be the magic number? Because trust me, guys, you are going to uh, greatly enjoy those tapes back back in the day. 
The real question is, when when will I be able to get those actually brought over from actual tapes and MP3s? <laughs> I already have some digitalized. Do you have some? So. Okay. Well, you might be on the stick, Johnny, on the spot more so than me. I was just. It's one of those things. You, it, it, I'm starting to get to the point where I'm like, it, I got so much junk in my house, and I'm like, nobody's gonna want this after I die. So now I'm at the point, of like, literally, like, <laughs> Boy, I'm throwing stuff away. That's a dark line of thinking, Chris. Is that's it? A little dark. Is it? It's Not a little really. dark. You know what? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's logical, but it's. Yeah. Uh, you're thinking of your your final departure from this mortal coil might not be the best way to spend your evenings, but uh, who am I to judge, I guess? <laughs> but I've, I've been transferring VHS tapes and cassette tapes yeah. and getting them yeah. all digitalized and that stuff you just throw away then. So See, they, I like the whole kind of unhoarding, the, de- the yeah. decluttering that I would have led yeah. with that than thinking about your own demands. <laughs> I'm going to die know someday. I'm, I'm, you do you, man. I don't don't let me yuck your yum. Yeah, all right, all right. Well, Travis, uh, we always do it. We have to do it this time. It's no different. Let's do the question of the day. Are you ready for this? Yeah, lay it on me. What do we got? As of November of 1971, this is uh, coming from the newspaper in 1971, all right? So the question is this. How many fallout shelter locations were there in Adams County in 1971? I'm going to give you some choices. Were there 11? 21, 41, or 61? Mm, boy, that's, I have no idea. That's interesting. Well, I'll, I'll simmer. I'll let it simmer, and you guys let it simmer, and we'll check back in here at the end of the episode and find out the answer. So the question again is this. How many fallout shelters were located in Adams County in 1971? Well, the answer for that, as Travis just mentioned at the end of this episode, but as we mentioned, it's time to go into the criminal underground, and we're going to be talking about one of the notorious criminal masterminds, if you will, here in the Quincy area. And that's coming up next here on Wild Quincy. Here's what you missed on the latest After Hours episode of Wild Quincy. Allegedly, and I emphasis on allegedly because who knows, there was a rumor about a skeleton being found in this tunnel that had on a Civil War uniform. I, I replied several times, like, do you have, was it in the news? What What is this? Yeah. And the only thing that came back was, I think some history guy looked at it. That's huge. So, I know. Right? I don't know. I don't know. Our After Hours episodes are available exclusively for Patreon members by going to patreon.com slash wildquincy. For just a couple dollars a month, not only will you double the amount of Wild Quincy episodes at your fingertips, but you'll also be supporting our efforts as we continue to dive into the wild and crazy history of our favorite town. Also, as a Patreon member, you can take part in our live events and Patreon-only outings, as well as having access to our regular episodes two days before they are released to the public. It's easy. Just head to patreon.com slash wildquincy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wildquincy and become a wild thing today. Back here for another crime episode. One of our favorite episodes that uh, we uh, do here on Wild Quincy, and one that has a, it's actually very, really popular as well, is talking about these different crime aspects about what has happened in the city of Quincy. And this one's no different. But before I get started, Travis, uh, this is one that I, I, I was, I was thinking, ah, oh, you know, it's not going to be that exciting. But then you and I had a conversation about a week ago right. before this happened, right. and it got really intense. Um, yeah, yeah. And so it, it's, it tells you that I think there's going to be some excitement, some. 
interest in this and um i'm gonna go ahead and say it but there's there's some stuff that it's the stuff is kind of still fresh in some aspects right there absolutely is and you might be thinking you know this was you know more than 60 years ago in some cases but the simple reality is there are still families and i don't name many names i'll, I'll give you a heads up but there are prominent names that still are in the community that would rather this kind of stories be in the background. Uh, we've run into that before with, with stories. Yeah. And we're, we're uh, you know, I, we've done a good job here to avoid bringing any negative limelight to any specific names. So, but, uh, you know, it's shocking, but things that happened 60 plus years ago can still have modern repercussions, Chris. It's crazy. You really think about it that long ago and it's still still fresh. I mean, there's still people talking about it, and there's still people that are saying out there like, oh, you, you don't want to talk about that. It's, it, you know, you don't want the wrong yeah. people saying the wrong, you know, finding out stuff and you getting on a list, <laughs> which sounds so weird. And, and I think you right. brought it up to me, Travis, before is that maybe, and uh, I'm, you know, I don't want to sound like crazy and saying this, but sometimes you might be a little ignorant or I might be a little ignorant to be more specific uh, of what exactly is going on and how bad it still why is. Wouldn't, why wouldn't you be, Chris? I mean, you, if you were to, if you're to come into Quincy for the first time, fall in love with the architecture, all the park system, all the good stuff that Quincy has to offer and raising a family, who would have thought that years ago, this was a dirty, dirty river town? <laughs> Overrun by prostitution, illegal gambling, mob presence. It was not, it was still a nice town, but there were things at play in the shadows that would shock you. And these activities are part of that, frankly, that we're about to get into. Well, I don't know if we can build it up any more than that, Travis. Maybe we should just jump right in. <laughs> right. Well, everyone, most everyone in Quincy is aware of the Moncton House. That is, of course, the red brick mansion at 1419 Locust. There is countless bits of information slash lore about the house itself, all the quote-unquote tunnels running to the river. We've talked about this in the past. You know, some people call it the Capone House. Some people call it the Mafia House. There's lots of different names, but at the core of it all is the reason it became the milestone that it is today. And that was because of a man named Leo Joseph Moncton. In certain circles, Blackie Moncton was his, his nickname, because, you know, you can't be in, into crime without a cool nickname. <laughs> right. So Leo was born in Camden, Illinois, in Brown County, on June 19, 1896. And by 1900, his family had moved here to Quincy, and they first lived at 433 North 12th Street. That, I think, is roughly where the old uh, Chinese place was on the corner of 12th and Broadway. Oh, yeah, yeah. I believe roughly right around there. And the family were very active members of the St. Rose Catholic Church uh, here in Quincy. They were Irish Catholic. There was actually a pretty decent Irish Catholic community, Chris. We always talk about the Germans. Oh, yeah. But there was a presence on the Irish side as well, and they were definitely a heavy part of that. Leo attended and graduated from the St. Rose of Lima Parish School. And during his later years in school, he also served as a paper carrier for the Quincy Journal, actually, in, in, in the time frame. Uh, 
he was doing some random odd jobs in high school and right out of high school. He was listed as a caretaker of Parker Heights, which is still around today. That uh, park is kind of right off Fifth Street as it turns into the highway north of town. It's more of a driveway for your cars. I think <laughs> recently it's more just a, a walking path. If we go way back, it used to be part of the Civil War, one of the Civil War uh, army camps huh. um, back in the day. And... Uh, he uh, he was very capable as a student. He always excelled in school. In 1917, 21-year-old Leo enlisted in the aviation section of the Army by way of Jefferson Barracks, where he was trained at Wilbur Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, and he, was making, and he made the rank of corporal in the 47th Aero Squadron and had several other posts before he would find himself in World War I. Now, World War I was well underway at this time. He was deployed in France in 1918. And there isn't a lot of talk about his day-to-day, but I don't think he really saw a lot of action. It seemed like a lot of his time in World War I, he was actually serving as a flight instructor at a ground school in England. So this wasn't a situation where he was necessarily right in the thick of everything in World War I, but he was definitely a part of it. And frankly, I think he was only in the Army uh, 22 months before the end of uh, World War One, hmm. which I believe was in 19, uh, 1920. Okay. So 1920 is, is kind of big for a few reasons, because something that would shape the rest of Leo's career, uh, organized and, and otherwise, uh, would be Prohibition. Um, talk about rocking the world. This, this kicked in in January of 1920. They put booze away. You could still drink it, but you couldn't distribute. The, the, the rules on prohibition are very interesting. I encourage you to check that out. The consumption of alcohol was never illegal. But it made it very difficult to make moving alcohol from one place to another and create it. making alcohol was the tough part. So let's, let's paint a picture here. In 1920, Quincy, Quincy was, uh, there was definitely a presence already. There are some circles who think that the family of James Earl Ray, who we will probably talk about in great extent in some point, I believe his father and maybe grandfather were associated in in crime, and I believe Quincy was basically a territory of the Chicago bosses. And at this point, Jim Colosimo was the, the, the big shot, up in what became the Chicago outfit, which Capone was a part of. And right at 1920, this Jim Colosimo guy steps down, and a, a new guy, Johnny Torino, takes takes the lead. That's so, a good name there. That's there's a-, a lot of great names. <laughs> um, let's break this down a little further, just full full story here, because I think it's important. Um, obviously, the Chicago outfit is the Italian mob. The Italian, there's there's a couple different mobs, obviously. Uh, Moncton's were Irish. Hmm. And it, at the time in, in Chicago, there was a heavy presence of both Italian and Irish mobs who, you know... It, it's a mob. Sometimes you work together. Sometimes you work separately. So they were technically two different mobs. Then is this what yeah, you're saying? Okay. It, w- it was not the same mother organization, but in certain time frames, their strategic goals found themselves in alignment. So at this at this point, I think they were pretty open to to business. That's neither here nor there. I, I didn't spend a lot of time on that. All things you know, oddest here. So in 1920, Moncton's back in Quincy. And he's living at 2601 Chestnut, where he was employed as a landscape gardener. Now, in 1923, things shift in Chicago. The Johnny Torrio, I believe is his name, steps down, gives the reins to everyone's favorite gangster, old Scarface himself, Capone, takes the reins in Chicago in 1923. 
1923 here locally, you start to see it. Moncton actually getting into the criminal life. Had he been in there before, we don't know, but this is the first time that I could find that he made the paper. In 1923, Moncton and an associate were arrested after they had allegedly beat two men severely in Hannibal. I'm talking a brutal beatdown with the crank of an automobile. I think back in the day you had to use a crank to start the automobile. Mm -hmm. So these two guys, Moncton and his associate, Just went to town on these guys. Moncton and his associate were escorting two women at the time. Probably prostitutes. If you read between the lines, it kind of feels like they were working as pimps, maybe, moving ladies over to to work in Hannibal. Which was really common in the Quincy area. Huge. Prostitution was massive here in Quincy. So what's interesting here is I believe that Moncton and his associate threw the guys in the car, brought them back to Quincy, and just dropped them off at a location. And I think they headed for the hills to let things cool down in Payson. But eventually they were they were arrested, brought in. And the two victims who they brutally beat, they failed to appear in court. And when pressed, didn't know who did it. Yeah, that enough. seems <laughs> that doesn't this seem like that trend. ever happens. <laughs> this is a trend. Yeah. People really, their memories get real fuzzy. Yeah. Whenever they get in the court system. Uh, so so 1923, Moncton's coming out swinging with a car crank. So in 1924, what we see here, Chris, it's it's interesting. This bouncing back and forth between maybe the, the 9 to 5 hours and the late night hours. Because he had to have a, a normal front, too. It wasn't just all mob all the time here. So in 1924, Leo opens the Domino Sandwich Shop which is, was located in the, in the complex that housed the Washington Theater. You know, there's kind of those little offices in front. Really? Right? Yeah, it was the Domino's Sandwich Shop. It was a popular place. This was like a state-of-the-art food establishment. It was quite popular. He got a lot of new technology. I mean, there's great articles in the newspaper that talk about um, doing this. And it really feels like Moncton's the money. So if you read between the lines, by 1924, it seems like Moncton's doing pretty good in the illegal side of things, making a pretty good paycheck. Yeah, whatever he's doing, maybe he's doing uh, he's doing bootlegging. I'm sure prohibitions three years in uh, bootlegging. Maybe there's some still operation. Most likely prostitution. Maybe his fair share of in in the the world of, of pimping. And you, we say the word pimping in, in almost as a farce today, but it was really. Pretty pretty heavily used profession back. Was then. this a money laundering situation with the with the with the sandwich shop or whatever? It definitely feels like it. And the the good and bad of this uh, of all these stories is that he was very good at what he did. He was very powerful, and I don't know if he was ever if he was ever arrested and convicted. It was something where he paid he paid the bond like the same day. And he was he was at home at night, but honestly, everything that's documented and there's a lot is probably just the tip of the iceberg to what this guy was really up to. But yeah, I definitely has the feel that this Domino sandwich shop was a front. Uh, I, he was more of the money. It felt like he brought in a shady character to run the daily operations, and this guy was connected with a 12th Street Roadhouse, which you know, you know, prostitution. Uh, bootlegging, elite, you know, the whole, you know, it was pretty, pretty well known. So, like I said, it didn't feel like Moncton was actually, you know, there pouring soda pops all day long at the soda fountain. <laughs> and uh, within a few months, the sandwich shop closed 
as a result of outstanding debts. So obviously the managing <laughs> day-to-day managing wasn't going great. Now in 1924, the sandwich shop did its thing and Leo decided to settle down, get married. He married a Mildred Ellabrake in November 1924 in a ceremony over in Missouri. There's a little bit of contradictory information where it was in Missouri. But apparently they had two ceremonies, one there and then one in the beloved St. Rose of Lima, which they were definitely a theme in their life, was was that church. Only th- this is this is strange. I had to go back and forth about five different times to this this point because three months before the announcement of their their marriage, the paper specified that he was he was engaged to another woman from the Keokuk area. Uh oh, yeah. And it must have fallen through, but it kind of makes you wonder if you're proposing to two women in in four months, maybe you're playing the field a little bit. I don't know. And and why'd the first one say no? I don't know. (laughs) Anyways, there were two Leo Monktons that kind of overlapped. One was a farmer, but uh, north of town. Mm. But it was a so I had to go back and strike a few things from the notes that were very bizarre. (laughs) This was not one of them though. At any rate, so Monktons married. And right about this time, 1925, I'm sorry, earlier I said 1923, Capone took over in Chicago. In 1923, he really just kind of got to Chicago. That's Capone. In 1925, and there's a reason I'm talking about Capone specifically, which we'll get to in the end, but I just want to kind of frame this a little bit. So 1925 comes along. Capone takes over the Chicago outfit. That's what the mob was known as, Chicago outfit there in Chicago. So back to Quincy. In February 1926, Moncton's brother-in-law is caught red-handed by the police unloading a truck full of beer in front of an establishment on 8th Street. And I don't know if this guy was just completely blissfully ignorant or what, but the brother-in-law claimed he had driven trucks from Moncton before, had no idea of the content, you know, people get real fuzzy memories anytime (laughs) they're doing business with Leo. His job was just to drive in front of the establishment, and he would be unloaded. So I don't know exactly what fines happened there. It didn't get super specific. But typically the trend was the, – the popular trend was if you were caught in association to an activity that was maybe owned by Leo Moncton, your best play is to play stupid, claim that it's your thing, because there is reimbursement awaiting you if you take the fall. Huh. You there's and we'll we'll get to that down the road. Down okay. the road. But they're gonna come out ahead in the long run if they take the fall for Leo. He remembers hmm. he remembers the people and he, he he was going to reimburse them for their inconvenience, shall we say. So nineteen twenty six, things are ramping up here. Leo and his brother Frank are arrested and fined for instigating a fight in the lobby of the Orpheum Theater. Apparently, the night before, there had been a uh, a bit of a fight breakout near the river. A lot of residual energy going on here. There wasn't a lot of details of exactly what happened. But uh, it's important to point out that when we say Moncton, Leo is who I'm focusing on. But there were actually three brothers. It was Leo, Charles, and Frank. And all three of them were heavily involved in the in the, the family business, shall we say. Has this been a thing that's been a, the, in the family before Leo and his brothers? Is this something that they came into, or is this something that they kind of put themselves into? I'd love to say I know, but to be honest, there's no real sense of that. Okay. 
it wouldn't surprise me if if they were a, if it was a family tradition maybe you know they were they were born in Camden Illinois which I believe is somewhere in north in, in Brown County maybe um whether their their father was associated you know it wasn't obviously overly clear being being in Quincy in the, your formative years kind of your teen late teens would be super easy to get mixed up in everything yeah. it was a crazy time being in the war, I think him and several of his brothers, one if not both, served in World War One alongside, not alongside, but in World War One as well. So it's hard to say exactly what that catalyst was into organized crime, but they took the ball and they ran with it. And Chris, I don't know if you ever watched the show Peaky Blinders Mm-mm. on Netflix. It's a show that's set in England in the same time period, and it's kind of a I think a they're more they're in England but there's kind of an Irish theme in the family and they're they're mobsters basically hmm. and all indication shows that these worlds weren't vastly different so to get a little bit of insight cuz the peaky blinders surrounds three brothers who are kind of running an organized crime syndicate huh. in in you know building their empire in England so it was I've been going back and watching that just to get a little you know get a little in the head of that kind of world and it was on different sides of the pond obviously different dynamics but interesting nonetheless um Hmm. so 1926 the fights are going on the orpheum theater the details of which are never super brought up in the newspaper a year later 1927 leo's brothers charles and frank are charged with operating a still in schuyler county charles was arrested immediately uh frank was nowhere to be found afterwards he got away Leo, strangely enough, had no idea about the location of his brothers when asked by U.S. <laughs> Marshals. And the plant was not just like a ramshackle hut. This was a $30,000 facility. Wow. Um, they were putting out the booze. They were putting out a lot of whiskey. I think whiskey was the big one they were doing. No hard details were offered on the owners of the actual establishment, but it was pretty well suspected that it was the Moncton family um, by federal agents. Um, federal agents left town, you know, it, they left town very quickly with very little investigation. The newspaper was pretty obvious in that. They were satisfied that Frank Moncton would eventually give himself in, and they and they, they went on their way. Wow. So not exactly a super hard press from the, the law. So 1928, this, this is, gets real busy here. 1928, all the Moncton boys, Leo, Charles, and Frank, they are, they end up on trial in Springfield, Illinois, in the federal courts, after being arrested during a raid on another, maybe the same, Schuyler County still. This could be playing off the, the earlier article. This might be the aftermath yeah. of that first uh, raid. Several employees of the Monktons withdrew their initial pleas of not guilty to the charges of guilty. Chris. Oh, wow. Uh, as to the owners of the still. They, when in court, they, people, they have people laying down in front of them taking the fall. The Monktons were each fined $500, and initially several months of jail time was introduced. The Monktons sought probation. Uh, he, this is fun. Leo even claimed that he hadn't even been in the bootlegging business for nearly a year. <laughs> instead, instead, focusing on the manufacturing of toys for the Des Moines area. Of so, course. I mean, that's quite a story. Yeah. And the court said... Uh, 
we're going to investigate those claims and get back to you. Uh, what, whatever happened with those wild claims apparently apparently didn't uh, didn't produce anything. Uh, you know, Hasbro and other toy manufacturers <laughs> already had the the leg up, maybe. <laughs> So what's interesting here is in 1929, shifting gears up in Chicago, that's when the, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre mm-hmm. in Chicago took place. And if you're not up up to par on your Chicago mob, that's essentially where Capone had a meeting where he basically took out a large section of the Irish contingency in Chicago. Um, killed five guys, just Bowed them down with machine guns. Still, it, was, uh, it was rough. They still have yeah. like a site for that today, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, anyway, th- this is interesting because you may or may not have heard of a alleged photo of Al Capone on the steps of the 1419 Locust Street um, I've heard something house. about that. Yeah. Yeah. The, rumor, the rumors are multiple people claim it exists. And that at one point it was in a bar that maybe Moncton owned, one of the Monktons owned, but it has since gone by the wayside. So there seems to be some ancillary evidence that Capone was in Quincy. And part of this for me was trying to figure out, okay, what makes sense for a time frame based on what I found out here? So in 1929, he takes out the Irish, a lot of the Irish mob in Chicago, which... I don't know specifically if Monk- Moncton, I think, was more on a gang level, Chris, in Quincy. He was ki- I think he was kind of his own thing. He got really big into, into to running booze, but more importantly, I think what really made him powerful was owning stills and, and ma- the manufacturing of the booze as well. Because it sounds like the distribution network exceeded Quincy by far. I mean, it probably went over into Indiana, maybe down to Kansas City, probably fed Chicago area too. Chicago was notoriously getting a lot of booze and prohibition from Detroit. But I got to think, you know, anybody who's doing business, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing they were probably sourcing their booze from other areas too. Quincy and the Monktons would have been the prime connection in this area. So whether... Whether Moncton answered to the Chicago guys, be it the Irish, be it the Italians, I don't know. I feel like his gang was kind of a separate entity that ran a pretty tight ship down in this part, but had to play nice. So if it was part, if he was part of the Irish mob, I got to think this Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago would have would have made those relationships a little dicey if he was dealing with the Italians and Capone after that point. But what's interesting, though, is that by 1929... They hadn't moved into the 1419 Locust yet. So to me, that kind of says maybe he wasn't directly associated with the Irish mob. Maybe Capone took power and any any hostilities that existed between the Irish side of the, you know, the, the faith and uh, the Italians for doing that were put at ease because he had to be in connection with Capone, maybe. Because 1929 rolls around, St. Valentine's Massacre happens. By 19, just a year later is when Leo actually, he starts selling cars as his day job, and they end up moving into 1419 Locust that becomes the Moncton House. It was already a pretty well-known kind of recreational establishment. I believe it was quoted as having all the the luxuries of a country club without the inconvenience of golf. <laughs> um, so, so take that for what you will. So it already was pretty well known for entertaining. It was a lot more wide open, a lot less settled around there. They had a lot of acreage that was just empty, basically. So, you know, things went down. 
Things went down. There. Was the Illinois Veterans Home already established by this time? You know, I don't know for a fact if it was, Chris. That I haven't overlapped any of the timelines on there, to be honest. Uh, it may have been, but I it, honestly, God, I want to say it probably was, yeah. but I can't. Say I just that think for, it, for just get a layout of what it looks like on Locust at this point in yeah. time, you know, just to yeah. get a feel for it because you're getting what you're saying, nineteen twenty. So again, I think you said something interesting here too. So Moncton did not build that house. That house was no, there it before. Was, it was built right after this, like at the end of the Civil War, by a railroad magnate, Charles Savage. Okay. So it had been around, uh, going like eighty years, ninety years almost by this point. Wow. And it had seen a couple different. Moncton was not. He. I don't even know if he was the second. He might have been the third or fourth guy in there. Okay. But but he did a lot. Took, he did a lot. He spent a lot of money on the house, fixing things up. Kind of at the time, adding modern amenities. Gotcha. Um, put in a pool in the backyard that I believe that since had to maybe be removed or is in process of being removed. But uh, yeah, he did not build the house. There's a lot of misconception there. Yeah. A lot of people. A lot of people say it was part of the Underground Railroad, but that timeline doesn't match up because the house wasn't built until I think 1865, maybe. And at that point, slavery was all, was nearly abolished, if not abolished. So, in, yeah, it's it's questionable. There's a lot of murkiness around that topic. Um, but you know, like like most good legends and local lore, not everything really checks out when you start putting <laughs> you know. To the it sounds good, but it never checks out. Exactly, it's a beautiful story, <laughs> whether it's true, you know. Yeah. So, in 1933, let's get back to Moncton here. In 1933, an owner of a beer parlor at 410 Main Street was arrested for making death threats to another sketchy character. And uh, the owner of the beer parlor was released when uh, Bond was paid by Leo Moncton. So, Leo, Leo watched... Thematically, I think you'll find that Leo watched over his guys pretty closely. If they ended up in jail doing his business... He made sure that if he if they took a fall, he got them out as quickly or with with some money in their pocket for the trouble. It seemed like, besides being an organized criminal and beating a guy with a tire crank or an auto crank, seemed like a pretty nice guy, Chris. He was just giving so, the people what they wanted. Apparently, uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta think, and there's a lot of a lot of perspective is what we'll we'll need here in a little bit. It seems like the the foot in the door for the Monktons and Quincy might have been either from scratch in the criminal world or playing off of maybe some smaller organized crime in the area. But the whole prohibition, much like all underground you know activity in in all the mob activity in the in the country at that time, was fueled by prohibition. And, you know, making booze, running booze, giving the people what they want, Chris, to your point. So when things started to cool down, prohibition wasn't working. It was creating more work. It was creating more work for all the law enforcement. So in 1933, as you said, you know, prohibitions rolled back. And in 1933, there was also some indication on a local front that that same kind of rivalry that was happening with running booze and making booze was starting to bleed over into a new territory. If you don't have to bootleg the, the booze anymore, you don't have to make the booze, you got to find something else to, to do. Mm-hmm. And that was found in gambling, illegal gambling. Mm. And at this point, just the, the serendipity of, of the mechanics and electrical devices, 
they were able to do a lot with slot machines. There was a lot of slot machines being put in downtown establishments. And at this point in 1933, there were quite a few places that they started popping up in Quincy. And there was actually nine slot machines that were stolen from the downtown establishments and like taken to Missouri. And this pointed to the fact that there were some rivalries happening on gangs who owned and operated these slot machines. Hmm. There was a beer parlor at 410 Main Street, Schwartz's Tavern at 519 Hampshire, the Barney Hartman Tavern at 906 Hampshire, Connie Graham's Have a Time at 10th and Main Street. And essentially what happened is these slots were taken by five men in two cars. And all these slots were identified as belonging to Leo Moncton. Hmm. So somebody else targeting him. they wanted a piece of the action. It was thought that the high profits Moncton had been making off these was wanting other, like I said, getting other people wanting to get in on the action. So what I thought was interesting is there wasn't any immediate talk of retribution, but I got to think that that kind of that kind of action is a, a bit of a war cry. <laughs> You're asking for trouble if you do that. So I don't know if what kind of repercussions happened if Moncton found out who did it or what maybe happened in exchange, but Moncton seemed to recover okay because this was kind of the first soiree into what became his specialty, which was illegal gambling, possibly even running it for the area and beyond with, uh, you know, as a arm or an extension of the Chicago mob. How does this connect? Because there's a book that both you and I have read that's called River of Shame. Are we looking in the right. same time frame with that book as we are with this type of time frame with, with Moncton? Yeah, River of Shame, if, if you're familiar with that, listeners, was an interesting book that really focused more around the Quincy character, Ted Crawley. Ted was a little bit younger than Leo, but they definitely ran in the same circles. Depending on who you talk to, because there are people that do chat about things in Quincy, but you got to be in the right circles and you're probably not going to be in a crowd when it happens. (laughs) My understanding is that Ted was basically a, just a, his his specialty was a pimp. He w- he might have been a hitman earlier on in his career, but his de- his bread and butter was being a pimp, and he kind of ran that industry for the for the Chicago contingency. But he allegedly, in the rank of things, I believe he would actually report to Moncton. And here later on, Moncton's going to go into World War II, and it's said that Ted was actually. Uh, kind of a tap by Moncton to run the business while he, while was, he gone. was away. Wow. Well, yeah. and so the reason I bring that up is because when you get into this gambling and in the, in the, I'm guessing you're looking at slot machines. Is that right at this time? Yeah, frame? we're getting right into the thick of this. Yeah. Yep, so exactly. you're looking at like, and I thought there was something along the lines in River of Shame where they talked about that the it wasn't only about just making money off the slot machines, but there was also like blackmailing and like like threatening stuff going on with the business owners too at that time. Yeah, that's, the, you know, there's a little bit of a distinction I think we need to make. Some people that I've talked to who who seem to be pretty in the know on the activities of Moncton, who've, who maybe had some chats with law enforcement, older members of law enforcement that could have been around for this. River is shame. The validity of some of the stories and some of the research has kind of been called out. I, I can't say <laughs> And there sure. it is. There it Chris, is. Chris, <laughs> you're no stranger to that concept, I know, in your other dealings. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> But some of the the facts don't mesh up, and there, you know several people pointed to the lack of footnotes and and actual sources in that book. So 
take everything with a grain of salt because unfortunately a lot of this information lies in the stories because it never made the headlines and it was sure as heck never written down anymore. All right. We're going to stop right here, Travis, because I'm going to tell everybody because this is the thing I have and I'm going to go ahead and point it out and I need to do it again. Okay. I grew up thinking that everything that was ever written was right and that was accurate and it was you know, there was no, it was factual, all that stuff. I have learned over the last five years, and no offense, I mean, we have some great authors that's come on here, but more often than not, there there's lies going on in books. And, and the problem with it is, is it comes down to is that, is there nobody proofreads, nobody fact checks an author anymore. There is no yeah. fact checking going on. So when you read a book, you gotta go in there with a, a with you know, it's 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 like going to a website, Travis. You, people can put whatever they want on that website. Doesn't mean it's true, but they Absolutely. can put whatever they want. Same thing with the book. Abs- yeah, you have to take everything with a grain of salt. Take everything we're saying with yeah, a grain of sure. salt. Yeah, sure. You should question yeah, everything. We're right. No, it's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's interesting though. I've I've over in my time since I moved back to Quincy after a couple years out away from here, Quincy after college, I first got into a circle where I I learned a lot of, about some of this stuff, very high level, and I've always had my finger near the pulse of kind of any little stories I could find out. But when you start hearing the same stories from different perspective, certain stories start really validating each yeah. other and i gotta say a lot of the and i won't I can't, I can't quote anything specifically but it you know there's a phrase that says you know people lie chris you know your, your mom lies the police lie but there's one thing you can always trust the word on the street <laughs> and maybe there's something to that maybe there's not but it's interesting. Yeah. It may it makes you question a lot of things. Yeah. We're getting ahead of ourselves yeah. here. Anyway, I, I had to get on that soapbox. I apologize. I'll get off. You continue on. <laughs> we do our best to utilize the resources we have. Who's to say the newspapers didn't get it wrong? Oh, yeah. You kind of have to go a leap of faith for all this. Yep. And you should always question things. That's the, the rule of life. Yep. Don't accept anything as completely fact. <laughs> um, so 1933, we're talking about how the operations of the Moncton family have segued from the bootlegging into the illegal gambling. So uh, in 1934, there was so much activity that slot machines were banned in Quincy because of these rackets that were forming with the Monktons kind of being the lead in this. So in 1934, Adams County sheriffs confiscated two, and I love this this phrase. I've never heard this phrase before. One armed bandits, Chris. Oh wow! And that was that. That was code for the slot machines. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the lever okay, you pulled I've heard out. that. Heard that before. Right, yeah. right. And this this happened in Payson of all places, Chris. Really? A, a little bar a tavern called the Green Parrot, which ha- was <laughs> in Payson at the time. And the owner claimed to not know who the machines belonged to, strangely enough, but were in fact Leo Monkton's as as the investigation kind of. Uh, you know, there's a green parrot that was down in Kent and down in Fall Creek, right? Yeah, yeah, I believe this was a different. Place. Okay, okay, yeah. It seems weird yeah, to have the I'm, same business name like that, though. I know, I know, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Payson and Fall Creek, you know, maybe it was the same place, maybe. but the time frames were completely. It adds off, up. So. It could be. Yeah. It could be. <laughs> Especially with so the maybe, activity they had going on there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think a lot of people know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll keep a family safe, though. <laughs> yeah. So 1934, then 1935, straight off the, the the next year. This is in May of 1935. 
the types of machines that were used as gambling in tablet in taverns and bars uh, had had had. It had, it had created this whole rivalry in gang activities. We're talking some real cutthroat stuff. Um, people people were getting knocked off. Um, the mayor of Quincy and the sheriff of Adams County got together. They agreed that both jurisdictions, they would ban any type of game that paid out a cash prize or a merchandise based off of a game of chance. So anything that was a game of chance where there was a profit to be made by because it was a game of chance, was deemed illegal, and they said, okay, this needs to be removed immediately in order to prevent um, the machines from being conf- confiscated. I can't say that word. Confiscated. <laughs> <laughs> confiscated. And the owner's being charged with the owning of an illegal gambling device. Now, what's interesting and what's so weird to me is you could have a, the exact same physical game but if there wasn't a payout, it was legal. Hmm. If it was just for fun, you were fine. So what's? why wouldn't you just wait till the cops show up, take away the sign saying what the payout is, and you're legal? Yeah. Boom. That's, as, that's as easy as it was. Yeah. So strangely enough, when you think of illicit gambling in gaming machines, what comes to mind to you besides a slot machines? What else? Uh, like, like, well, what do you want to call it? Like uh, table games and stuff like Crap that. Craps tables, yeah, kind yeah. of stuff like that. Yeah. Sure, that's what came to my mind too. And then I kept seeing all these allusions to pin games. Pin, pin games. games. Any guesses? No, no idea. Go down to any penny arcade these days and you'll be surrounded by them, Chris. We're talking about early pinball games. Early pinball games were the next step. It, what happened here is they banned slot machines. Okay, what else can we get in there and use for gambling? And so it was the. I actually have a couple of YouTube clips of these machines from the era to show people what they look like. And it was not, you know, obviously they didn't have the elect, the flashly electronics right. as we have today. But essentially you had the plunger device that threw the ball up to certain notches and crevices that had certain monitor or certain values associated with them. And based on high scores, you would get, they would use that as a way to distinguish what kind of monetary compensation gambling wise huh. you would get, what the odds were, things of that nature, right? So the whole pinball games really evolved because of the need for a legal gambling substitute, you know, based off the banning of slot machines. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was more serendipitous and they were coming into their own at that same time period. But nonetheless, I never equivocated that pinball machines would be one of the main tools at this point for illegal gambling. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll get that YouTube posted to. You to know, Facebook I do want to point out one thing real quick. You know, these guys were really good about making sure that you know when prohibition was going on, they weren't having any problems producing alcohol. But why is it that they this suddenly, when this whole stop gambling thing and stop slot machine thing happened, that they just shut down shop immediately? Did they not go underground with that too, like you did with prohibition? Oh no, it's oh, it was still going. Yeah. Oh, okay. it didn't get shut down at all, Chris. No, no. What ha- I believe. Owners might have put it away for a little bit, but you know, here's the thing, and we're going to get on this into a minute. At face value, when you think a, a tavern has a one of these these machines, you think, okay, they're making some money on the side because of this. Mm-hmm. It's a little more complex than that. 
it's not usually their choice whether they have the machines or not. Hmm. This is where the mob aspect kind of comes in, Chris. They're placed there. The organization, the family decides where do they need to put their machines at. So if you're a prominent member, say the Monktons, and you're approached and you're a tavern owner approached by them, and they say, guess what? You've been selected as a poet for one of our machines. There wasn't really a graceful way to say no thanks. Yeah. Because, no thanks. I don't want to bring this machine in my place that jeopardizes the very existence of my business where I receive a minimal payout of whatever profits this place thing actually makes. So these tavern owners weren't... weren't uh, some entrepreneurial spirits looking for a side hustle, they were really more of a victim. Yeah, they were cornered, right? They yeah. didn't have a nice way to say no. And I think that goes back to what I was, I was trying to convey earlier with the blackmailing and stuff like that, is that they there was it wasn't totally at their their discretion. They they weren't in favor of necessarily having these things in their in their establishment. Exactly. The 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 Italian mob was more about rackets where they offered protection. You know, like yeah. pay this expense for protection. The Irish didn't typically do that. And to say that Moncton was of the same breed as like an Irish mob in Chicago, I don't know if that's accurate. I, I just don't know. Um, but it sounded like his name, his name and his reputation preceded him in Quincy and well beyond where if he knocked on your door and said, we're going to put a machine in here, you knew enough to make it work. Because it wouldn't work so well for you if you said no. Hmm. 1934, slot machines are banned in Quincy. And maybe even in Adams County. So 1935... uh, 1935... Yeah, 1935 is when they said... It was kind of roughly when they said, okay, any game... Yeah, any game that produces a payout is illegal. Quincy and Adams County. Can't have it. Two years go by. Apparently, nothing has changed. <laughs> of course. They're still going strong. The Illinois Liquor Control Commission has to step in at this point. And the chairman of the board subpoenas 127 tavern owners who were all observed in like a secret sting operation as having these illegal gambling devices in their business. And like I said, two years later, the, the Quincy mayor and Adams County Sheriff tried, you know, quote unquote, tried real hard to stop this from happening. Didn't really happen. They might have they might have kind of simmered down for a little bit, but they were back in full swing. So these 127 tavern owners had to report to the Lincoln Douglas Hotel to hear a laying down of the law by the commissioner of the Illinois Liquor Control Commission himself. Now, typically an event of this nature would be treated as a federal thing. It happened in Springfield. But the pandemic was so bad in Quincy that it Quincy. made no sense to go anywhere but Quincy for this. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was, it was like where the problem was. So they came straight here. So uh, the, the, t- the tavern owners all met. They had 48 hours to rid their business of all devices or else they would lose their liquor license. So the message from tavern owners was basically what I was saying earlier. Most of them wanted no part. In these gambling machines, mm-hmm. they didn't want them in their establishment, but they were forced into doing so by these underworld characters like the Monktons. And approximately half of all these tavern men owners, they admitted that Leo Moncton was the owner of these machines. Wow. So that's over half of so over sixty of the one hundred twenty-seven admitted it. The majority of people wouldn't say who it was, which 
kind of makes you think it's Moncton. But if you're going to say it, then at least you had a huge group of them saying it, so he can't go after you know a right. small few that have pointed it out. Right. And and to further illustrate my point of Quincy was a river town, Quincy was a rough town. Quincy, you know, everything I've heard is is Moncton control politics. Like you'll hear in the Illinois stories documentary they did at the Moncton House in the last couple of years in the upper room where in bedrooms there was a there was a one room that had a lot of murals of nude women hmm. and i don't know if it was that room or another room on the second story but one room was called the mayor's room chris <laughs> wonder why yeah well <laughs> prominent patron of such services it sounds like we won't go into names but uh at any rate, these these these, ta- these tavern owners were only getting like a super small amount of money from having these in their their places, so they were really kind of coming to the surface as being very like a sympathetic character in this whole play, where they were really a victim here more than more than anybody. And over let's see, over when when the sting operation was happening, over one hundred and ten pinball games, fifty seven crap tables. And multiple gambling games were observed in the investigation. So there was a lot of stuff that was happening in in Quincy. The commissioner actually came down hard on the mayor saying, you know, why are you letting this criminal activity run so rampant? Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got to get on the stick here. And he took some major heat. Mm -hmm. Now, one of these tavern owners who was at the meeting claimed that a city alderman himself was the owner of his illegal gambling machine in his establishment. Hmm. So, I mean, this affected all circles of politics. I mean, nobody nobody was uh, super clean in City Hall at this point, I don't think. There's actually stories of, of Charles Moncton, I believe, went up to Keokuk, and I believe he took a one of the, uh, the detectives of the Quincy police with him to try to convince a Keokuk police officer to reduce the sentence of uh, oh, wow. one of Moncton's boys who got caught over <laughs> there. So, yeah, I, I didn't focus on that one since that was more Charlie. But, I mean, Charlie and Frank Moncton were just as in the thick of it as Leo. Leo kind of emerged as the brains of the operation, the head of the family, so to speak, here. I believe he might have been the younger brother of the, of the, t- the three. But, uh, you know, lots of stuff was going on. So so gambling was going on, going gangbusters. In uh, December 38, I mean, the money's rolling, Chris. Moncton was claimed to be worth millions. Oh, wow. When Wall Street crashed, I believe, when was that, 1929? Mm-hmm. He lost a lot of money, hmm. but was able to make it all up in a matter of, of years, apparently, because of all this activity. He had to get rid of this money, Chris. <laughs> you got a bunch of money coming in, you can't exactly go to, go to your accountant with this come tax season. So you got to get rid of it. So what's a good way to do it, Chris? Uh, money laundering. Money Launder some money. Yep. Get that money laundering. Gotta clean it. So why not... Use that money to provide a service for the community. Of course. That is how you do it. Why not open up a theater, Chris? <laughs> Particularly, why not, on December 1938, open up the State Theater? No! Which was opened by Moncton, which all reports indicate and point to the fact that that was a front for his money. Oh, alone. my gosh. How cool. Yeah, it was, And he didn't half-ass any of this stuff. He He went all out. A lot of articles in the paper talking about the design. It was very Art Deco, very, I believe, the the kind of lining they used created a really good sound in the theater. It was a primo location. 
it was all about it. So yeah, I mean, Quincy, Quincy benefited from his activities in, in several ways. One of which was the, having the state theater, which, you know, is back and uh, doing its thing now open again. So kind of, kind of ironic. At any rate, 1938 also finds Leo and seven others indicted by a grand jury charged with conspiracy through operation of slot machine rackets. The slot machines are still going, Chris. <laughs> they haven't gone anywhere. Uh, Leo is charged with six counts. And in January of 1939, Moncton was found guilty and fined over $1,000, which he paid immediately and headed off. (laughs) So, I mean, you you couldn't really shake him. He had the money that he could could walk away from whatever they could throw at him, essentially. He didn't get his hands dirty at this point, I don't think. He had plenty of people to do that for him, it kind of sounds like. So... I don't know if if things were getting hot here in town or if Moncton was just a patriotic guy. But in 1942, World War II is upon us. So Moncton had been served in the Air Force, essentially, in the Air Division of the Army. And he's commissioned as a captain in the Aviation Corps of the Army. And he reports to active duty in Miami, Florida, where later he's assigned to a flying field in Oklahoma to help instruct new recruits and prepare them for roles in their aviation career. Hmm. So he actually is deployed in 1943, or actually a little bit earlier than 1943. I don't have the exact date, but he's actually stationed in northern Africa where he's in charge of an Air Corp depot for several months. Wow. And in 1943, it doesn't give a lot of details, but he, he was back in the States. He had some kind of a sickness, a reported sickness. He recovered whatever the issue was, but it was enough to force him back to the U.S. So 1944, he's back in Quincy, and he's got plans. And this is interesting to me, Chris, because I haven't been able to find out a lot of what happened here. But he's planning to build another state-of-the-art movie theater at 18th and Broadway, hmm. which I think I've heard rumors of a theater being in that area. But I'll, i got to do some more research. I don't know. If you guys know, let me know what, if there ever was a theater near 18th and Broadway. This is 1944. Don't know what happened there. So, you know, it kind of gets the vibe. Moncton's back in town. Things are a little quieter on the front of the criminal activity. But then in 1956, eight years had gone by without any other run-ins with the law, at least reportedly. He's arrested after the legal slot machines of his were located. He pleads guilty to being an accessory and was fined $1,500 for bond, which he paid. So... So it's, things wind down a bit. It's 1959, and Leo Moncton dies. He, he's uh, 62 years old. He had a two-week illness. Doesn't say exactly what it was, what happened. But he, he dies, and he's buried here in Calvary Cemetery. And the, the Moncton legacy, he and his wife only had one child, a daughter, no sons. I believe the family moved to California not too foot long afterwards. And all the legends of 1419 locusts, are left to kind of reverberate in the wind. And the legends of tunnels and Capone and Mafia just kind of percolate because the reality is Moncton was, I think, way bigger than anybody ever realized. It's certainly, at, maybe at the time people know, but nowadays there's just not the record of how big his empire was. Uh, yeah, that's not something you're going to find at the the local no. library by any means. No, if you if you are able to watch the Illinois story episode on the Moncton, we'll put a link to it. The royalty family who's currently still renovating and living in 1419 Locust. Uh I believe the sister-in-law or of 
one of the family members directly associated with him is that actually has put together like a scrapbook, which I'd love to get my hands on at some point with a lot of like ancillary stories that people have told them about hmm. Moncton. Cause at this point, the only record you have is stories yeah. of, of what happened then. And there are quite a few stories that are floating around all over the ether on the internet. And I have assembled those, Chris, and we're going to get into the more dirty details of that and some more of the more speculative things in our Patreon episode next week. Because all this stuff were things that came from the newspapers, but that was a small sliver of the activities. We're going to hear a little bit more about what uh, what the underworld might have looked like from people that were there, at least family members of those who were there. Very neat. Well, Travis, before we wrap up, there's one thing that's been bugging me with this whole episode, and and I want to get your thoughts on it real quick before we wrap up, and that has to do with, you know, we always think of, like, Chicago as, like, a really notorious place for the mafia, and New York, and places like that. But, you know, being this local and being so closely connected to the city of Quincy and hearing these stories, and we're thinking, holy cow, um, you know, it sounds like there's a lot going on. But have you ever took the moment or do you have anything comparable to use? Is is this average for compared to other cities in, in, in crime activity or or is Quincy seem like or actually has an actual higher level than what what you normally see in other smaller towns? No, Quincy was definitely not standard run of the mill. Um, it, it was big enough, at least on the, the gambling front, Chris, illegal gambling in the 40s, Collier's Magazine did an article on Quincy on how crazy of a town it was when it came to gambling. I believe, I don't know if Bunkton's name, I haven't been able to get my hands on those articles, but they say that there were over 400 and I want to say in the seventies slot machines that Moncton ran in Adams County at a certain, at the high point. And no, it, it was an anomaly. It was absolutely an anomaly. What's interesting about Quincy, and and I got into some good conversation. I do want to thank Matt over at the Gold Line Barbershop. Matt and I had some good conversations. He's had a lot of interest in kind of the underworld in Quincy. Uh, he's a former cop, so he has access to you know that kind of brotherhood of policemen you know uh, capability to to talk to other law enforcement, older law enforcement that was firsthand knowledge of this kind of stuff. And you know he he, he was able to chat with me and has had a lot of surprising things. I, I'm not to repeat, and I won't. <laughs> and uh, you know, he's he's an expert in a lot of a lot of topics. And he said, you know, the reason why why Quincy probably was such an anomaly was there was no heat on Quincy. You know, the feds were all over Chicago. Mm. The feds were all over Kansas City, on the the metropolitan areas. Little Quincy, Illinois, is strategically obviously placed real close to a lot of big cities. It's just a couple hour drive away from the action. For whatever reason, the actual feds coming down and breaking stuff up just didn't hit as hard here because of how rural we were. And that was just one of the many factors that, that produced this empire of illegal gambling and you know, prior to that bootlegging and manufacturing. Uh, Quincy, I mean, how many bars did Quincy have before <laughs> Prohibition, Chris? Right. I think there was 12, somewhere yeah. around 12. And... There are some thoughts that not all 12 were completely shut down during Prohibition. You know, that's all rumors. But, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of questions that uh, that we were still producing. Then even in our Bars and Churches episodes, weren't we up to like 180 after Prohibition? 
<laughs> yeah, I, I I couldn't tell you. There's, there's I'm, ta- well I'm talking about breweries, not just oh, bars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but then you haven't had that many yeah. church or how many bars exactly. after the fact exactly. that there's a lot to work with there. So, and what what's interesting here is is the people that were going after Moncton the hardest were the members of the church. They didn't want this activity. You know, they these were the probably the Baptist, maybe the Baptist in the. I know there weren't a lot of Baptists, but a lot of priests and and pastors were the ones that were just raising hell. Mm. <laughs> strangely enough, to law enforcement, saying, "Why aren't you guys doing something wow. about this?" And it's because he owned him, Chris. Yeah. I mean, all speculation, everything that I've heard says that Moncton didn't have to fear anybody in the in the city or in the in the county. Because, again, going back to that distinction, if you want to look at the Italian and Irish side of criminal activity, is the Italians were were very loud and boisterous. A lot of things like big shootouts and, you know, Valentine's Day massacres and a lot of protection, offering protection where the Irish were a lot more strategic, where it was more about, okay, let's affect change by infiltration. Let's infiltrate the police. Let's infiltrate the politics. Let's eat at the dinner table across from members of the police because they're associated with us. They're in our family. So a lot of times you saw Irish become active in, in, in the police forces. I won't say you know that's strictly because of mob activity, but it tended to be a trend. And I think a lot of that is what happened. They got involved in politics. They got involved in the city. You know, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of names that are still around in Quincy that are associated as patriots of Moncton back in the day. And that's a lot of the reason why even 60 years later, there is a significant amount of heat on this. People want those things to stay in the shadows, rightfully so. It's part of our history, whether we like it or not. And all that stuff I talked about, that was all in the paper. So it's crazy. It's a crazy town we live in, Chris. It's a crazy oh, town. Still got to love it, though. And I mean, maybe the sweet perspective of it all, Chris, is gambling didn't ever go away. It's legal now. <laughs> it's legal now. <laughs> there may be more slot machines now than there were in this yeah. time frame. So if Moncton was around today, what would his vice be? Yeah. All his all everything he was doing would have been would have been legal now. Yeah. <laughs> Strange, right? Crazy. I don't know. Food for thought, Chris. We'll talk more about this on the Patreon episode next week. That is a look at uh, Quincy's uh, own Al Capone, do we say? Eh, Close enough. Close enough. Talking about uh, Leo Moncton. And we'll be back with more after this on Wild Quincy. You know, this was me five years ago. And it's still me. As I confess, I'm a waistline watcher from way back. Well, that's enough for today. Now for a lively lift. Ice-cold Coca-Cola. There's no waistline worry with Coke, you know. Actually, this individual size bottle has no more calories than half a grapefruit. Mmm, another thing, the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. Coke's a natural, wholesome blending of pure food flavors. I guess that's why everyone likes the refreshing new feeling you get, only from not-too-sweet Coca-Cola. And no wonder. Lively, lifty Coca-Cola provides a welcome bit of quick energy between meals. Thanks for a pleasant pause in a busy day. Oh, and remember, Coke is low in calories, too. Say, now, don't you get any thinner. (laughs) 
So Travis, uh, who knew that I was going to lose weight while drinking Coca-Cola? Com- common knowledge, Chris. Welcome, welcome <laughs> to the diet secret you've, you've missed out on all these years. Yeah, it's mad. It's 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 almost unbelievable, frankly. <laughs> yeah, almost, right? almost. That was a, a 1961 commercial. It was a TV commercial that was out there, and it, it's just funny to listen to. She's she, you know making the comments about man, I'm keeping a thin thin waistline by drinking this coca-cola and it gives me and then i'm like and then my thought my automatically my thought process went to did it still have cocaine in it (laughs) that's a good question but you know what 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 struck me is how much how should we say that commercial would never be maintained not because of the ludicrous statement but how slow of a pace that was it was oh, all yeah. relaxed, and she's got ten seconds to sit there and drink the diet coke, yep, and just exactly. dead air for ten seconds. When's the last exactly. time you heard ten seconds of dead air on TV that wasn't a technical <laughs> difficulty? You know, right? It's you just if nobody's got the attention span for a one minute commercial on diet coke, <laughs> so it's uh, so. It's crazy. And I actually, this is kind of an off subject, but kind of not. Is that I actually think that the the advertising people who come up with ads that actually do that are the really good ones that they actually go to the extent of making it something abnormal to catch your attention. And you have that happen every once in a while, like especially radio ads where they like literally have silence because as soon as you hear silence, you're like, what's wrong with the radio station? Oh, totally. Yeah. It's, it's that cognitive dissonance of this isn't normal. What, what is this? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that absolutely. That's definitely yeah. a clever play. If it's a, if, when it's done well, preferably. But yeah, absolutely. But in 1961, when this ad came out, I don't think they were thinking they that. had all the time in the world to tell you about <laughs> Diet <did>. Coke <laughs> for a minute, man. A minute. I don't remember yeah. the last minute commercial I've heard. That's oh yeah, good point. You don't even yeah, have TikToks it's... that long now. <laughs> TikToks. Uh, somebody that's not familiar with TikToks is Harry Middleton Hyatt Travis. Can you imagine the quality TikToks that guy'd be putting out? <laughs> we should do that. And, A whole TikTok channel just based off that book, Chris. Off of those, like it'd be like it'd be like um, like uh, uh, words of wisdom or what is that uh, the, from Jack Handy? Remember yes. on Saturday Night thoughts. Live? Deep thoughts. Deep thoughts. Yeah. yeah. So, but we got to bring out the golden pipes to bring this Here next section. Are. Let's bring him in. And now it's time for words of wisdom from Adams County. All right, Travis, wit wisdom, as we mentioned, Harry Middleton Hyatt. And Travis, I got to bring this up before we get into this. Harry was an intelligent man. He made this massive book, but he missed some numbers. Missed some numbers? Yeah. What do you mean? So I was going through and trying to find, I, we have some from last year still, though, that you, some of you guys gave us some numbers. And this year's numbers, I kind of cleaned up. There really wasn't any more good ones left. So I went to the old numbers from the first time I asked to ask or look around for some more. Uh, Travis Shirley Brinkmeyer gave me the number 822, so 822. So I jumped to 822 in this book. There is no 822. Oh, Chris, it's a cover up. <laughs> Does it say what edition that is? Uh, I don't know. I think uh, we're, we might be at the edge of a conspiracy here, my friend. Exactly. There is, is stuff that is missing. We need to find some additions and compare this. There's exactly. some quality knowledge and wisdom of our forefathers we're being left in the dark about. You can tell it's a page that, like, because it's uh, it's actually 822 and 823 that's missing. 821's on the page before and 824's on the next page. Oh, my So, gosh. I don't know. Because if you even look at the type, it's old school type. So, it makes me think they just literally copied and pasted this into this book. I don't like um, that at all. From the original. I'm, I don't know. I, you got robbed knowledge. 
got robbed too knowledge and there's probably more but uh so so surely uh not skipping Shirley, you. we're gonna get to the bottom of this the book's skipping you surely surely we're gonna fight for you <laughs> uh so anyway we go on uh and i found this one uh, by uh this one comes from uh, one of our old time patreon members amanda van ness all right uh, so yes. i know why she chose this one and i thought that you know what i bet you we're gonna talk about this today so we'll add it. Uh, the year or the number goes with the year 1982. I think we know why she chose that. I know that year. The section comes from Cats. Cats. Oh, I bet there's good cats. ones in there. Uh, 1982. Never let a cat come into your house. It is very bad luck. I was working at a sporting house, and then it says a house of prostitution in this case. I was going to say, ask if that's what it was Yeah, <laughs> years ago. And they would not let the cat in the place said it was very bad luck. Words of wisdom from Adams County. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of places you could go playing out the cat joke there, but we won't because this is family friendly. Um, so Amanda, you picked, you picked one about a cat sport, sporting houses. Sporting That's house. such a good term for a, a, a brothel. I mean, yeah. can you imagine if they had ESPN back in the day? Boy, that'd be some quality <laughs> content, wouldn't it? A lot of sporting news. I don't know. Yeah, oh. yeah, definitely. Well, there you go. Well, there's our wit and wisdom from our forefathers and foremothers of Adams County. Travis, before we wrap things up, we got to end it with the uh, most important question. And that is the question of the day. Have you been thinking about this one? I have, and I feel none the wiser. So let's remind everybody what I'm I'm going to be dumb about in a minute. So Quincy has quite a few fallout shelters. And according to a newspaper article from 1971, how many fallout shelters are there actually in Adams County? I'll give you some choices. Do we have 11, 21, 41, or 61? Travis, you want to give it a, give it a guesstimate? Oh, man. I've... Coming in completely cold on this one. I'm going to say it was 41 and 61 were the last two choices, yep. right? Yep. Uh, us, you know, 41. I don't know why. We go 41? Yeah, final answer. You would be correct. No way. Yeah. 41. Wow. According to uh, this article from the Quincy Herald Wig in 1971, it's called Community Shelter Plan for Adams County. Counted up the ones on the map, and there are 71 locations in Adams County. Well, that's wild. Uh, 41. Hmm. So, so, sorry, I said 71. 41. Yeah, there, it was in 1971. There was 41 yeah, locations. A lot of numbers are flying around <laughs> fast and furiously here. Hopefully, they don't get stolen by the same people that went to Hyatt. Um, <laughs> Well, what what is the connection? We know we know the question of the day is always the teaser. What does that mean for our next adventure of auditory uh, programming, Chris? So we are going to have our last "What If" episode for okay. uh, the foreseeable future, and this one is "What if the world ends?" Oh, oh, that's going right to the oof, end here. That's big. Sounds like you thinking about what to clear out of your closets, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Uh, we're going to not only talk about the past. We're not going. We're going to talk about uh, things like this and the the war, our fallout, and nuclear bomb issues, things like that. But uh, one of the things, Travis, you've brought up before, I brought it up uh, on this uh, podcast, is talking about EMP attacks. We're going to talk about that. that. Is super interesting to me. We're going to talk about uh, what if uh, Yellowstone erupts? How is that going to affect Quincy? And then we'll look at some other possibilities as well. So, what if the world ended? We'll have that coming for you next time here on Wild Quincy. Well, if if the world does end between now and then, at least ending for us, that means our 
our content today has been a little too hot for radio, apparently. Hot for the podcast. <laughs> you don't hear from us again, right? You don't hear right? from us. Check some shallow <laughs> graves. Um, exactly. But, or, or search the river. That's right. Hey. Uh, but if you do want to get a hold of us before that happens, make sure you give us a shout on our comment line. You can text as well. 612-666-9453. That's the best way to get a hold of us. Wildquincy at gmail.com will do the same. Chris, any other parting words? No, just make sure to check us out on Facebook and uh, keep up to date with what's happening. But uh, I believe that's it for for Travis Hoffman. I'm Chris Kedger. You've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft. And thanks for listening to Wild Quincy. Wild Quincy.